welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. And I'm joined today by Andrew Hamilton, one of our great book reviewers. And we're going to talk about some of the books that are being reviewed in the current issues of Dialogue and other books that are coming out recently of interest. Andrew, good to have you. Good to be here, Andrew. It's the uh, To Andrew Show. That's right. We're back. So what have you been reading recently that you're interested in? Oh, there are so many great books out right now. There's just a wealth of wonderful and fun and exciting books. We're going to be talking about books about Ezra Taft Benson, the LDS Gospel Topic Series, a brand new book out from Desert Book called Repicturing the Restoration about all sorts of art and fascinating things. Lots of great stuff. I look forward to discussing some of these books. Why don't we start with the Ezra Taft Benson book? What is that? Awesome. So Matthew Harris is a professor at Colorado State University, and in 2019, he edited a book called Thunder from the Right, Ezra Taft Benson in Mormonism and Politics. It's a book of eight essays, uh, which he edited and also contributed an essay to, and he states that his intent was to offer a fresh and stimulating retrospective assessment of Ezra Taft Benson's life and legacy, particularly his considerable accomplishments as a public servant, Cold War figure and religious leader in the half century after World War II. And I have to say, I feel he really succeeded. Ezra Taft Benson became president of the LDS Church a few months after I turned 12, and he died a few months before I came home from my mission. So he was the prophet, the figure that I heard about during all those formative years. He, I, I knocked on doors for two years talking about him, so I thought I knew a lot about him. But these essays in this book are fascinating in their depth and detail. Let me just tell you a little bit about a couple of them. The first essay is called Ezra Taft Benson and the Family Farm. It's by Brian Q. Cannon, and he talks about how Benson got a blessing from David O. McKay right before he left to be the Secretary of Agriculture, and he explains how Benson took this mandate seriously, that he was on a divine errand during his time in Washington to fight socialism and to promote traditional farming, and he felt like this was a religious mission for him. Another one I found very fascinating was by Gary Bergera, who takes on the story of Ezra Taft Benson meeting Nikita Khrushchev. Andrew, you might remember the story of how Benson talked about how he and Khrushchev kind of stared each other down, and uh, Khrushchev told Benson supposedly that your grandchildren will live under communism, to which Benson was supposed to have said, Mr. Chairman, if I have my way, your grandchildren and everyone's grandchildren will live under freedom. But Jarrah points out that that probably never actually happened. That Benson uh, elaborated and, and, and built on this story over the years, and that he probably took that story from somebody else, that Khrushchev said that to somebody else entirely, and, and Benson kind of incorporated that into his own story. And, and all of the essays are just absolutely fascinating. He talks about Ezra Taft Benson's take on Martin Luther King and the civil rights era. The uh, Another one called The Cold War and the Invention of Free Agency talks about how Ezra Taft Benson pretty much redefined for the LDS Church what free agency was, how it had been approached entirely differently by Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and other early church leaders, and then... Ezra Taft Benson basically turned it into a brand new thing. Another fascinating essay is by Andrea Moss, who takes on Ezra Taft Benson's view of women. And, and they're all great, just excellent essays. 
very in-depth and detailed. These authors definitely did their homework and uh, have a lot to say about this very important leader who helped to define politics and political understanding in the LDS Church right up till now and why the church takes the political stances it does and why so many church members tend to be Republicans in the United States and lean right in their politics. Very, very excellent, fascinating stuff. All right. And then just to kind of touch on a couple of things in relation to that, he built on that by releasing another book this year through the University of Utah Press called Watchmen on the Tower, Ezra Taft Benson and the Making of the Mormon Right. It's a short book. It's only about 125 pages long, but then it has about 75 pages of notes. So he, again, a lot of homework, a lot of depth. The chapters in this book are called Socialist New Deal, Socialized Agriculture, Making a Conspiracy Culture, Reigning in the Apostle, and Remaking Benson. And again, they just explore in depth and in detail Benson's politics, his approach to conspiracy theories, how he was convinced to believe by Robert Welch that there were all these conspiracies going on and and that communists were everywhere, and that even though he had been in Eisenhower's cabinet, he became convinced by Robert Welch that that Eisenhower had been a communist or was at least being used by communists, and it greatly kind of impacted, again, the way that Benson thought and the way he preached to the church and the way things are interpreted in the church now. In the second chapter, Harris mentions that as Benson prepared for his move to Washington, the FBI conducted a thorough background check to ensure his fitness for office. They interviewed over two dozen of his closest associates and friends, including members of the Quorum of the Twelve, and they gathered all sorts of documents on him and put it into an FBI file. That FBI file is actually now available for purchase as well. Signature Books just released recently a book called The Complete Ezra Taft Benson FBI File. It's an e-book only, and you can see all of these documents that the FBI collected on Ezra Taft Benson. Absolutely fascinating stuff. So if you're interested in Ezra Taft Benson at all, you have a wealth of information in these three uh, recently released publications. Wow, that's great. How about the Levina Fielding Anderson collection? Can you tell me about that? Certainly, I would love to. This was one of my favorite books of the year. So as many of you might be aware, Levina Fielding Anderson was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as one of the September 6th back in September of 1993. What is very unusual about her story is that she's continued to actively attend her ward ever since, participating as much as they would allow her to. But yet to this day, she has not been allowed to be rebaptized. Over the course of the last 30 years, she has preached a number of sermons and written a number of essays. Mercy Without End Towards a More Inclusive Church is a collection of 18 of these sermons and essays and talks with most of them coming from the period of the 1990s, right around the time of her excommunication. It was published by Signature Books a little earlier this year. And I fell in love with this book as I read it, because as you read the book, on every page you can feel Levina's hope and her inspiration and her love and her, her great feelings about mercy as she talks about these important ideas. One of the things that she states is that there is a place in the church for all of us because there's room in the grace of Christ for every human being in the world. Mother Teresa says that Christ would have died for you if you were the only person in the world who needed his redemption. I want us to feel that grace, that redemption. 
A little later on, as she's telling about her excommunication and some of the mistreatment she received, she describes being in a sacrament meeting with her bishop and state president who are responsible for the excommunication and how her son, who was then about 13, was passing the sacrament that she was no longer allowed to take. And in that moment, she had a bit of an epiphany. And she says, for a moment, we were all suspended in holy timelessness. My stake president, my husband, my son, and I as the emblems of the sacrament were passed. We were all together within dedicated walls, all beloved children of God, all mortal beings, imperfect and broken. For all of us, Christ suffered and died to bring healing and wholeness. Something hallows this moment. I felt at peace. And she says many more stories and insights like this. She talks over and over again about the impact that Christ's mercy has on us and how his love will heal all of us. I would just conclude my thoughts on this book by saying that as I was writing a review of this earlier in the year, I had a, a conversation with Christine uh, Hogland, the former editor of Dialogue, and she said, Levina is the best of us. And I fully agree with that. Levina is the best of us. And that nature comes out very clearly in Mercy Without End, as you read of the love and hope that she has for all mankind. Let me tell you uh, my experience with Levina. So I've talked to her on email once in a while, and I've, I've certainly read a lot of her work. But I got to meet her about two years ago when the Association for Mormon Letters was giving her a lifetime award for her work in editing and lots of work behind the scenes in Mormon publishing. Uh, so I, I spent an afternoon with her, talking to her about her life and her career, and she pulled out a thumb drive and said, here is the work that I've been doing on Maureen Whipple. Now, back in the late 80s and early 90s, Levina and Veda Hale were working together on a project, a biography of, of Maureen Whipple, and uh, collecting her unpublished works. She had lots of stories, and, and the sequel to her great novel, great novel, The Dying Joshua, a sequel to that that was not finished called Cleave the Wood. And Vita had gotten to know Maureen in her last years, and she brought in Levina as a friend of hers to help her organize these papers. And they're working together on that, and they got quite a bit done. But then the whole September 6th thing happened, and she got caught up in that, and she, she had to drop out of the project. Vita was able to finish the biography of Maureen Whipple, but not you know, put together these collected works. So the project kind of stalled out there. And so Levina said, I really want to have this project done. Can you find somebody to, who will take this on? So I said, okay. So I took the drive with the materials in it. And I asked around friends of mine and people I knew who were interested in Marine Whipple, but nobody else was able to take on a project like that. And so I ended up taking it on myself. Uh, and I contacted Vita and I said, let's, let's get this started again. I was in Japan, so it was hard for me to go to the libraries and track down all the documents that we needed to. We found another fan of Marine Whipple named Lynn Larson, who is an author and a great lover of that literature, and she knew Vita. And so the three of us together worked on finding all of these documents in the BYU and Dixie University libraries, where Marine Whipple's papers are. And we have created a book that just came out a couple of months ago called A Craving for Beauty, The Collected Writings of Marine Whipple. About a third of it is the sequel to The Giant Joshua, and then a lot of other short stories and essays that she wrote from the time she was just in late high school, early college, some of the earliest ones in the late 20s, early 30s, up to uh, the 1960s. And one of those stories called Mormon Saga is published in the most recent issue of Dialogue. And there's also an audio recording of it in the Dialogue podcast. 
And that's an amazing story about a young couple who are members of the church in Nauvoo, and then also during the trek west, and also a lot about the doubt that members had about doctors at the time. And doctors at the time had some problems. They, were, they weren't great at the time, especially childbirth. You know, should doctors be involved in that or should they just use uh, midwives and, and, and natural remedies? And that's a, a great story. And that's in the collection. And again, it's, it's in dialogue as well. But so anyways, Levino is the one that got that started, got me on that path. So I'm very thankful for her that she was able to connect me in that way to Vida and, and this project. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. And it was very sweet. I, I met her and her husband and her son. And the next day was the Association for Mormon Letters Conference, which was held at BYU. And we honored her. We gave her this lifetime award there. And a lot of her old friends were there. And just a lovely day. And the fact that it was at BYU was quite nice, I thought. And actually, it was the next day. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. It was that night. They went home that night is when her husband, Paul, passed away. Oh. It was actually, he was there for this night where, where she was honored. And I, I'm so glad that he was. Yeah. Oh, my. Wow. That's beautiful, though, that he was able to be there. Awesome. Now, speaking of the Marine Whipple collected writings, just came out. Now, that came out through BCC Press, by Common Consent Press. And that is the first of a new series called Classics in Mormon Literature. And another book has come out right here at the end of the year, Josephine Spencer, The Collected Works, Volume 1, 1887 to 1899. This is uh, Michael Austin and Artis Partial have put together this collection of Josephine Spencer, who's Maybe not not remembered so well today, but she was one of the most prolific authors of Mormon literature and, and most prolific Mormon authors in this kind of late 1880s to 1920 period. And she's a fascinating figure, very progressive, very pro-union, almost socialist in her, her ideas. And she wrote a lot of stories for the various magazines that the church produced and also other uh, national magazines as well. And so Mike and artist did a lot of work scanning over late 19th century journals trying to find these stories and putting them together. And it's really a remarkable group of stories. She's a great author, and I'm so excited for this opportunity to revisit her works. Uh, maybe her, her best-known work is called The Senator from Utah. And again, very political work. I mean, she was, she's a, she was a faithful Latter-day Saint, but very progressive in her politics. Uh, and there'll be a second volume of her early 20th century works coming out uh, next year as well. Now, also a connected series called Essays in Mormon Studies from Biocomics Consent Press is Reapproaching Zion, New Essays on Mormon Social Thought. This is edited by Samuel D. Brunson and Nathan B. Oman. And these are essays that are reassessing Hugh Nibley's classic Approaching Zion, the, the essays that he wrote in the 70s and 80s. And Nate and Samuel collected a, a collection of great uh, LDS authors, LDS scholars, to reapproach, to relook at these things. I haven't, looked, I haven't seen the book yet, but it looks like an exciting book. So BCC Press is doing a lot of very interesting things. They are. In fact, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to have a favorite press or not. Maybe I'm not normal for having a favorite press, but BCC Press is right up there. They've become one of my most favorite presses this year. I've read a number of their books. The, the great thing I love about them is they publish books by people who might not normally get published. They have a lot of women authors, a lot of minority authors, and just great and fascinating stuff. And one of my favorite books from them this year is called The Book of Mormon for the Least of These uh, by Dr. Fatima Sala and Margaret Olson Hemming. 
And you know, as well as I do, Andrew, there have been a lot of Book of Mormon commentaries over the years. You know, many, many authors have attempted to write commentaries on the Book of Mormon, and, and many of them have been very good, but it might bring up the idea, do we really need another Book of Mormon commentary? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this is an absolutely beautiful commentary on the Book of Mormon. Uh, Dr. Saul explains as she starts to read it about how moved she was by the Book of Mormon when she read it as a 15-year-old, how she cried and rejoiced as she read about Alma, how she was disturbed though as she read about Nephi talking about a skin of blackness being a curse. Dr. Saul is uh, African-American, if you're not familiar with her. Uh, she wondered about the women in the book and why they were treated the way they were and, and why they were kind of left out of the story. Uh, but as she teamed up with her co-author, Margaret Olson Hemming, they decided to take a entirely new approach to the Book of Mormon. They state in their introduction that we wrote this book intentionally looking for messages about issues related to social justice. As we worked on this book, we specifically asked the question, who is present but unheard? Who is suffering and why? What kind of violence is in the background of this story? How does this call us to relieve affliction? How are these actions informed by trauma? What are the diverse ways that God is showing up in this person's life? And this is the first of three books that they're going to write, and it covers from First Nephi through Words of Mormon, and they take this whole new approach to you know, looking at women in the Book of Mormon, looking at social justice in the Book of Mormon, and trying to find you know, a new way to interpret and help people to find great meaning in those Book of Mormon passages. Another book I wanted to touch on real quick, since you brought up one of my absolutely most favorite people in the world, Artis Partial, who is a great historian and researcher. Uh, she teamed up with somebody who, I'll be honest, I'd never heard of before uh, May of this year. I got an email from James Goldberg, who runs the Mormon Lit Lab, and he and Artist Partial teamed up to write a book called Song of Names, a Mormon Mosaic. And it's a very interesting and unusual book. Uh, it is a book of poetry and history at the same time. Each kind of chapter or section gives some context. It provides a little bit of historical detail about a lesser-known person or event from church history before having a poem written mostly by James Goldberg. And then each section follows with a bit of reflection by either Goldberg or Partial. And they talk about these fascinating and unusual and very touching stories from church history, people you probably never heard of in many cases, and and why their stories are important and why we can't forget these people. And it's a very, it's a moving and a lovely book. I I fell so in love with it that I went out and bought uh, some of Goldberg's other books, including a book of Lamentations, a more recent book of his poetry, and the five books of Jesus, kind of an exploration of the Gospels and the New Testament that Goldberg wrote a few years ago. Just beautiful stuff. I'd, I'd encourage reading them all. Yeah, the Five Books of Jesus is a it's a fictional work. James has a Jewish background; it's one of his many backgrounds, and he he knows a lot about Judaism. And he wrote this novel trying to put Jesus and his disciples and their teachings into context. It won the award for the best novel from Association of Mormon Letters that, that year. I'm glad you get to know James and his work because yeah, he's he's a real hero of mine, and this effort of his to his and artists is to put together kind of Mormon literature and Mormon history with the Mormon Mosaic book uh, is very much something that he does. That's right up his alley. He's currently the president of the Association for Mormon Letters, and he was a uh, 
a playwright and wrote a lot of plays and, and ran this uh, play project at BYU for several years. And But then in the last few years, he's really gone wild and he put out a, a collection of short stories and essays that are also reviewed in a, one of the recent dialogues. And now these two new uh, poetry collections. And he's also runs the Mormon Lit Blitz, which is a annual or more than annual contest of short, short Mormon literature. So he's doing some really great stuff in Mormon literature and Mormon publishing. Well, and also speaking of uh, the Book of Mormon and by common consent, there's also another book that they published this year, which is Metty Ivy Harrison, the novelist, wrote a book called The Women's Book of Mormon, which is a reimagining of the first half of the Book of Mormon. It's volume one of two volumes, but focusing on female characters that are either just barely mentioned or even weren't there at all. But, you know, who were the females, who were the, and also other kind of left out people on the sides of the story of the Book of Mormon that we have now and imagining stories for them. So there's a lot of interesting literary, scriptural, historical works that are coming out right now. They're kind of mixing these genres. Awesome. Well, what else would you like to talk about? All right. Well, Andrew, I'm just going to touch on briefly a few recently released books that I think are fun or fascinating. We mentioned Matthew Harris already. Matthew L. Harris and Newell G. Bringhurst released a book of essays through Signature Books in the last couple of months titled The LDS Gospel Topics Series, A Scholarly Engagement. And as most of our listeners, I'm sure, are aware, starting in 2013, the church started releasing a series of topical essays on polygamy and violence in church history, Book of Mormon translation, and other things. And that people had maybe been troubled by or had left the church because of these kinds of things. And it was the church's attempt to answer some of these concerns. And in this book, these two editors have collected essays on each of those essays that the church wrote. So they've got essays that take a scholarly approach to examining the church essays and discussing them and their importance and their role. And I think it's going to be a very important book, and it's one that I would encourage people to check out. Another book that came out from Signature Books that I had a lot of fun with was called Spencer Kimball's Record Collection, Essays on Mormon Music by Michael Hicks. Mm -hmm. Michael Hicks was a uh, professor of music for a very long time at Brigham Young University, wrote books on uh, Mormonism and music and the Tabernacle Choir. And several years ago, he uh, happened to talk to President Kimball, Spencer W. Kimball's son, Ed Kimball, who invited him over to his house and said, would you like to have some of my dad's records? And Ed had collected a number of records that belonged to his father over the years. He And Hicks writes about this in here. And among other fun things, you find out that Spencer W. Kimball owned an album by Motley Crue and Bob Dylan. You'll have to read the book to learn a little bit more about that. But, but these are fun because some of these essays are very lighthearted. Uh, they take on some Mormon myths, such as what was... Joseph Smith's favorite song. Did Joseph Smith really ask for a poor wayfaring man of grief to be sung in the Carthage jail? He talks about how the church has put together its hymn books over the years, and he examines a lot of things about Mormon culture and ideas and music and just a lot of fun stuff there. Another fairly heavy book that just came out is called Exploring Mormon Thought, God's Plan to Heal Evil by Blake T. Osler from Greg Coford Books. And we're actually going to explore this in a little more depth here in the near future in a roundtable discussion. But in this book, he tries to tackle the very huge 
problem of evil. The very first line of the book says, the problem of evil is perhaps the greatest challenge to belief in a loving and personal God. And then as he starts the first chapter, he brings up a song that he greatly disliked. And I, I, I loved his beginning because I disliked it too. He talks about Bette Midler's song from the late 80s, early 90s, from a distance. God is watching us from a distance. And there's no guns and no bombs and no disease from a distance. And he says he, he doesn't like that song because of the idea that he dislikes the notion that God is distant and aloof and that he views us from a distance and doesn't notice the evils in the world. He hmm. then tries to define evil and he talks about three kinds of radical evil. And he talks about the kidnapping and murder of a young girl in Utah in the early 80s talks about the accidental death of a daughter of a friend of his, and he talks about death from disease and smallpox and some of these kinds of things. And he connects how all of these are different types of evil. And then over the course of the book, he tries to tackle the idea of, you know, if God is all loving and all knowing, how and why does he allow these things to take place? And how do we try to understand evil and tackle it? Again, a very deep, a very weighty uh, book. You, you actually posted a review for us on the Association for Mormon Letters website. And the author of that review says, I would recommend only reading 10 or 20 pages a day and taking time to digest it. And I agree. It's a kind of book you have to tackle kind of slowly and really digest. From those serious and heavy books, I want to talk about a few of the more fun and interesting books I've read recently. One of my favorite people that I have come to know recently is a man named Matt Page. Matt Page is a Mormon artist. He actually has a website uh, that some people may be familiar with. He likes to do fun LDS-related art, so he has a, a piece of art called Lorenzo Snow Cone, and it shows Lorenzo mm -hmm. Snow eating a snow cone with snow cone dye kind of all over his face. And he likes to take Mormon art by uh, like Arnold Freeberg and he, he adds Pokemon to it. Or my son's favorite is when he took the painting of Abraham about to be sacrificed by his father from the book of Abraham uh, in the Pearl of Great Price. And he replaced Abraham and his father with Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. Uh, so that kind of gives you a feel for what Matt Page is like. And in this graphic novel called Future Day Saints, Welcome to New Zion. It's a story that's set a thousand years from now in the future on a planet called New Zion in comic book style, and it mixes bits of Mormon culture and Mormon doctrine with fantasy and sci-fi, and you get all these kind of humans and alien characters interacting, and it's just kind of a fun and unusual take on Mormon themes and ideas, and I really enjoyed reading that. It's a great, great book. I, I, I really enjoyed it well. And it's, it, I mean, it's fun for adults to look at, but he also makes it so it's like an activity book. Yeah, yeah. has coloring pages and other fun stuff. And, and, and one of the things I thought was really fun about it is like a lot of the older comic books, especially that had advertisements, he's kind of got fake advertisements in here. So there's one that says, buy the new album from Adam Ondai Skaman, available on vinyl and cassette 12, two of 29, 29. Yeah. Just kind of these fun little things. It's a lot of fun, a great fun book. Another fun book that I read recently is one aimed at children by Deseret book. And it's called standout saints, 
church history heroes from around the world. And one of my favorite reviewers that I've worked with, Heather Harris Bergevin, uh, reviewed this for me. And she talked a little bit about this, and I want to quote her. And she says, I grew up in the 80s, and we had children's books to teach us about different saints and church history. The catch was we had to deal with all of the humans of note who were female or not Caucasian being prohibitive to the important people. Standout saints, church history heroes from around the world, is a book I wish I'd been able to find when I was a child and for my children as I was raising them in the gospel, seen as it is a bit of a chance to reparent myself even. Being able to teach my children there were many, many people seeking to follow the gospel in various ways in our history. And I love this book because it's a series of short, just one page long biographies of people from church history. It alternates so that the first story is about a woman, Lucy Mack Smith, and then a man, Edward Partridge, and then a woman, and then a man, and back and forth. And while some of these are people you've heard of that are famous from church history, you get a lot of people from other countries, such as Desiderio Quintanar de Yanez from Mexico, and it tells her story. You get to learn about uh, Martha Hughes Cannon. You get to learn about Khan Shoshonitz Zundel, a young Shoshone woman who survived the Bear River Massacre. And, and just lots of great people you never would have heard of, minorities and women and people from around the world, and the role that they played in church history. And it's a wonderful book for children and young people to learn about the church. Well, it sounds like it kind of fits with the a song of names yes. that, uh, that Goldberg and Impartial did. Hey, as long as we're talking about uh, children's books, another one I want to mention is Susan L. Gong and Masahiro Tataishi created a children's book called Ming's Christmas Wishes. And it's published by Shadow Mountain. Now, Susan L. Gong is the wife of Elder Gong, one of our uh, apostles, and she based this story on his family's stories, Chinese who had come to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century, and the prejudice that they faced. And so this is the story of a, of a daughter of one of those immigrants who loves Christmas and wants to participate in Christmas, but is feeling prejudice from the people in the San Francisco area that she lives in, from the white people that live there. And also, her mother is not excited about Christmas. That's not their traditions. And so she feels kind of pinched between these two people. It's a beautiful story, and the art is beautiful. I really fell in love with the art. The artist, his name is Masahiro Tateishi. I look at him. He's in my state here in oh, Fukuoka. Cool. <laughs> Turns out he's in the war next door. He moved in recently, so I didn't know him before. And now and we haven't been meeting live, so I haven't met him yet. But it's beautiful art of traditional Chinese carvings that are in there. Anyways, I, I highly recommend that book. It, it's an excellent book. And yeah, just very lovely, a wonderful story and great art. Beautiful. That's cool that the artist is, is living near you. That's awesome. All right, let me tell you about two more books as I kind of wrap up my contribution here. There's a new book out from the BYU Religious Studies Center and Desert Book called Repicturing the Restoration, New Art to Expand Our Understanding. It's by Anthony Sweat, a professor of church history and doctrine from BYU, who also happens to be a professional artist. Now, we're very familiar with many events from church history that get painted over and over and over again, but... Professor Sweat takes on some of the more unusual or, or stories that may have even been kind of forbidden to talk about just a few years ago, things that may have gotten you into trouble if you tried to bring them up in Sunday school. The book is broken up into three periods. 
Part one is New York and Pennsylvania. Part two is Ohio and Missouri. And part three is Illinois. And over this book, he has 25 paintings that he has done. Each one gets their own chapter. Each chapter begins with a section called a background. Then he has a section called an image. After that comes an application and then an analysis. And as he goes over each of these with the background, he talks about what the story is behind the painting. So for instance, one that has been talked about very much over the last few days on social media is called Relief Society Healing. And in this painting, it depicts three women blessing another woman using consecrated oil who is about to give birth. And so in the first section of background, he has about two pages that tell of the background behind when women were allowed to give blessings and what the early church teachings were on that. Then in the section called an image, he talks about the composition of the painting, why he used the framing he did, why he used the color he did, why he used the lighting he did. So if you're into art and art criticism at all, you'll be absolutely fascinated by this book. And even if you just enjoy art, I think you'll love learning more about how the art is painted and why. Then in the section called an application, he gives us an application for today. He talks about how this applies now in the church and how we use this information. And then at the very end of each of those sections, he analyzes and breaks down again this story from church history and these incidents and why they're important. And he does this for many fascinating stories from church history. The ordination of Q. Walker Lewis, one of the early black men to be ordained to the priesthood. He talks about and depicts Joseph Smith finding his seer stone. He depicts the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor and many other, again, less known or, or sometimes controversial events from church history and gives them an excellent story and information and a beautiful piece of artwork. And it's a, it's a fascinating book. I would highly encourage people to check that one out. All right. And that's the Religious Studies Center for BYU. Yes. yes, the BYU Religious Studies Center and Desert Book Co. produced that book together. So I had one more book I wanted to kind of finalize and tell you about. And this, I'll be completely honest, I've enjoyed a lot of books this year. But this is my absolute most favorite book of the year. Not that it's the most heavy or the most serious or might have the most impact on LDS thought or studies going forward, but I just fell in love with this book. And it is from the University of Utah Press, and it is called This is the Plate, Utah Food Traditions. And it is a collection of 74 essays on exactly what I just described, the traditions behind Utah foods. I'll just throw you out some of the, the, the essay or chapter names in here to give you a feel for what's in this book. No Happy Hour for Happy Valley. Green Jello, Utah's Fry Sauce, Funeral Potatoes, Utah Scones, Dutch Oven Cooking, Hawaiian Haystacks, Lumpy Dick and Fanon Hottie, Stella's Root Cellar, Provo's Black Sheep Cafe, the Fresh Mech Skirmishes of Cafe Rio and Costa Vida, Homemade Costa Vida Cafe Rio Pork, Artisan Beer and Cheese, Soda Pop Wars, and Pie and Beer Day. And that, I mean, that's just kind of a taste of some of the chapters you'll, you'll read in this book. And I love this book because there's a lot of fun history, a lot of fascinating history, uh, a lot of folk history. But let me just quote a little bit from one of the essays that explains why I love this book so much. Chapter 34 is called Mexican Food, A Recipe for Love, and it's by Elizabeth Archuleta. 
And in this essay, she talks about being raised uh, with a Spanish-speaking background in Utah and what her experiences were like. And she describes the foods that her family ate and how important these foods were. And at one point, she says, My grandma Kate always had a house full of her own kids, grandkids, and extended family's kids. So I could never figure out how she was able to make enough tortillas for the next meal or to last for later meals. There wasn't bread in her house. There were only tortillas. So she had to make enough to satisfy all of us who eagerly grabbed the tortillas as fast as they came off the griddle. I long for the days when I could go to my grandma's house, lift the dish towel in which the tortillas were wrapped, and eat a homemade tortilla. Nowadays, tortillas are found in the fridge, wrapped in plastic that contains a company logo, a nutrition label, and an expiration date. Manufactured tortillas don't taste like home or love. They taste like convenience that comes off of a conveyor belt. And, and that little bit there captures why I fell so in love with this book. Here in 2020 with so many crazy, goofy, wacky things going on and so much stress and wildness, this book conveyed to me a sense of love and home and that kind of feeling for family and traditions and folk stories and, and all of those things that connect us to our past and our people that play such an important role in our life. You know, we talk about comfort foods. Well, this is a book of comfort foods and it has recipes and other great stuff in it. And I'd highly encourage checking out This is the Plate Utah Food Traditions. Excellent. Thank you. Well, let me, let's wrap up. Uh, let me tell you some of the novels that have been published this year. We did a podcast recently with Dave DJ Butler about his recent books. He's a great author who mixes fantasy with Mormon elements. Sometimes the Mormon elements are, are right on the surface, like in The Cunning Man about uh, a magician in 1930s Utah. And then he has this other series called The Witchy Series, which is set in early America. And there's no specific LDS references in it, but it's a very LDS-influenced fantasy world that he creates. And so we talked to him in a recent podcast, but he has a new book out in November called Serpent Daughter, which is the first in a second witchy trilogy. Uh, so the fourth volume in that, in that full series. And he has a sequel to The Cunning Man coming out early next year as well. So he's a great author. And also sim similar, Brandon Sanderson, a very well-known fantasy author, has the Stormlight series, which is also a, a fantasy series that has some Mormon elements in it. And the fourth of that series, The Rhythm, or Rhythm of War, just came out. You know, these are huge fantasy epic novels. And a lot of people love them a lot. Also, in a upcoming podcast, we're going to be talking to LDS authors who are writing about late 19th century frontier era Utah, and specifically polygamy in novels. Phyllis Barber, who is one of our great authors, she has a novel called The Desert Between Us, a historical novel about a polygamous family in St. Thomas, Nevada in the 1860s. You know, St. Thomas, Nevada on the Muddy River is a, is a very, very difficult place. There's also the U.S. Army that goes from Texas to California and also coming up to Utah, and they use camels on this route. Oh. Uh, years around the, the Civil War time. 
So there was these camels going back and forth. So there's a someone who has left the military and taken a camel and comes up and, and meets his family. So that's a very interesting novel. And then there's another novel about the same Muddy River mission by Dean Hughes called Muddy, where faith and polygamy collide, published by Desert Book. So it's very, you know, I think quite notable that Desert Book is willing to publish a novel about polygamy and the difficulties of polygamy. Yeah. Dean Hughes is another really great professional author. And that book, the first volume, Muddy, won the Association for Mormon Letters Best Novel or Award uh, for 2019. And then 2020, he has a sequel out called River, where faith and consecration converge. And this follows the people who left the Muddy Mission when it was basically closed out by Brigham Young and went up to what became Orderville in the Long Valley uh, north of Kanab. And they, you know, did the United Order there. And Orderville, this town they created, was the longest lasting version of the United Order that was done in Utah. So the, the story of this family continues there. And really wonderful stuff. So we're going to be talking to Dean and Phyllis, as well as John Benyon, who also had a pair of novels about uh, Frontier Era Utah published in 2019. Sounds awesome. My children love kind of the LDS written fantasy. They're huge fans of Brandon Mole's Fable Haven series and ML Foreman's Adventures Wanted series. So this witchy series sounds right up there. Uh, their alley. I'm going to have to check that out. Definitely. Uh, some other novels that came out in 2020 by Common Consent Press has two novels by female authors that are about contemporary Utah and Mormon culture and people who are in and out of the church and the politics of Mormon culture. One is by Twyla Nui called Sylvia and another by Charity Shumway called Bountiful. I haven't read either of those yet, but I've heard good things about them. So I'm looking forward to looking at those. And Rick Grundner has a novel called 116, which is a bibliomystery about the 116 lost pages of the Book of Mormon and potentially finding those and the clues behind those. Rick Grunder actually owns a bookstore in Palmyra, or the Palmyra area at least, and this is his first novel and it's gotten uh, some very good reviews. So I'm interested in seeing that awesome. as well. And finally, uh, Robert Hudson Ben Wagner has a new novel, The Contortionists from Signature Press, which is a mystery novel set in in the salt lake city area okay cool let me just start one more quick mention since you brought up by common consent press again and twyla nui i've got her book on my stack haven't read it yet but i did read her sister's book of poetry melody nui johnson wrote a book of poetry called an imperfect roundness that was also released by the bcc press earlier this year it's fairly brief only about 80 or so pages long but absolutely beautiful i, I would encourage anyone to check that one out as well she talks about uh, the divine feminine uh, has a poem i fell in love with called god is a farmer's wife uh, writes about heavenly mother and other beautiful uh, subjects in here just a very very beautiful book if you love poetry at all check it out it's a great beautiful little book great one more book of poetry i'll mention is um, mary jane rice's grace like water which is a collection of poems based on the new testament and that's published by james goldberg's mormon lit lab and i've loved mary jane jane's work in the past so i'm looking forward to reading that lots of great stuff out right now lots to choose from thanks so much for joining me andrew thank you for asking this show is a part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. 
It includes wonderful shows like Face and Hat featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepsen. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Oh, and hey, one more thing I wanted to mention about kind of literary things. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you're listening to the podcast's Dialogue Out Loud. I mentioned uh, Maureen Whipple's story, Mormon Saga, was part of that. Also, there's a recent story by Larry Menlove called Who Brought Forth This Christmas Demon? It's mostly uh, short fiction, but they also do some personal essays, part of that series as well. There's been seven so far, and they're very professional. They have actors performing these stories. They have music and sound effects. I think they do a great job with these books. So please listen to Dialogue Out Loud series.